Lesson one, basic hip. Welcome to the Jazz Session. I'm Jason Crane. This is episode 469 for December 1st, 2018. On today's show, pianist and composer Wayne Horvitz. Please support the Jazz Session by becoming a member at patreon.com slash the jazz session. That's p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com slash the jazz session. Wayne Horvitz has two new records out, The Snow Ghost Sessions and Those Who Remain. Here's a selection from the trio recording, The Snow Ghost Sessions. My guest is composer, pianist, uh, all-around uh, musical maestro Wayne Horvitz, who has two new albums that have come out, The Snow Ghost Sessions and his orchestral album, Those Who Remain. And uh, Wayne, it's great to have you here on the show. Thanks so much for being on. Oh, well, certainly my pleasure. Uh, I think I'll start, if you don't mind, with the trio album, The Snow Ghost Sessions, first. Uh, one of my favorite things about that record is that as many times as I've listened to it now, there are still moments when I'm not exactly sure what instrument is causing a sound to happen. And I really love that about it. I love the fact that it it feels like the the sonic textures as much as the uh, you know kind of harmonic choices are are inventive. And I really enjoy that about the recording. Well, thank you. I, I enjoy that about it, too. In fact, that kind of not knowing what's what is something I always sort of aspire to. I mean, I love it when you're improvising, particularly if you're, you're, you know, you're doing a sort of open structure improvisation and you think you're making a sound and you realize it's the person you're playing with who's making the sound <laughs> or, or vice versa. And I've always sort of enjoyed that. But I also like sort of and I always like it when people say to me anything that includes every time I listen to it, I hear something different, you know. So that's that's important to me. Now, I kind of I like the story of this record, which is a little different than how most records come to be, I, given that it didn't really even start out with 100 percent certainty that a record was going to come out of what you folks did. Would you talk about, first of all, who's in this trio and then how you ended up where you ended up? Yeah, I had a sort of a, a, a relationship with the guy who owns the studio. 
he had given me some free studio time about a decade ago because he was just starting out and we had a mutual connection. This time, it was more of a trade. He gave us free studio time for four or five days. In exchange, we were supposed to give a concert for a sort of uh, house concert for audiophiles, which is a very, very, a very specific kind of house concert. <laughs> but in any event, um, uh, it's a very nerdy house concert, I guess is what I'm trying to say. But it was a lot of fun. And um, yeah, but I didn't have a budget or I didn't have a project. So Jeff and Eric, we were not at that time a working trio, far from it, but we worked together constantly. I've played with Jeff almost since I moved to Seattle, which was in the early 90s. And, That's bassist um, Jeff uh, Harper, just to get his full name. Yeah, Jeff Harper. And Eric Eagle, the drummer, is someone I've worked with. We were just trying to, we were just talking about the other day, I can't remember what we met. I mean, I heard him through other people that I knew. Um, and... Uh, but now we've worked together for quite some time. And so, and he had been the, the new drummer in my band, Sweeter Than The Day. So Eric, had, Eric Eagle and I had been, you know, regular partners in, in a group of mine. Jeff has just played my music off and on over the years. And, um, and we've played in other, you know, other places in, in Seattle particularly. I mean, he's just one of the first called players here in Seattle. Uh, so I just said to them, does this sound like fun? Um, Eric likes to ski and it was still going to be the winter. And unfortunately the snow was lousy, but I mean, and Jeff just likes to do stuff. I mean, it was just very casual and they got us a place to stay. And, you know, we cooked in the, in the condo and we went to the studio every day and yeah, absolutely. I had no idea if I was going to just say I had a fun week or if I was going to keep working on it. And it turned out to be the latter. And what, what did you bring with you, musically speaking? It's uh, it, When you walked into the studio, how much was already conceived of in your head? How much was, let's start making sounds and see where this goes? Well, nothing was conceived of in my head. I basically just grabbed a bunch of sketches and, and compositions that were sort of laying around. Some of them were more fully realized. Some of them came from a project I did, an, an installation project I did, where I wrote some very short chamber pieces for strings and voice and clarinet so i reconfigured them for piano and um some of them were like the opening track i mean that theme is maybe six bars long you know it's and it doesn't have a structure to play on uh when i originally recorded it with the chamber ensemble i recorded it uh and then i manipulated it electronically i mean it was a completely different construct so, but there's also like the third tune called trish is a tune that i had arranged for a large ensemble that i conduct but i'd never really performed it myself um so and a couple of things come from silent movie scores so they had been recorded but not with any kind of improvising involved or anything like that so they were just recorded as the themes themselves and not with that instrumentation. So it was a variety of things, and I had no idea, you know, what I was going to use and what I wasn't going to use. And, and we also recorded stuff that we started to record, and, you know, nah, this isn't working. And then we recorded some stuff that never made it on the record, you know. So it was sort of just go out there and do as much as we can and see if we enjoy it. And, um, and then the stuff I love the most I kept.
there's a lot of, uh, as you mentioned, processed uh, piano on here through uh, through pedals, I think, in this case. Although I know you've said yeah. in interviews that you use Max MSP sometimes, but this is all pedals, as I understand. And was that, were yeah. you doing that live as you were playing? Were you using the studio as an instrument later? How did that work? Both. I mean, the intent was to do it as live as possible. There's also some samples I played. In fact, some of those samples come from the installation that I mentioned earlier. I did a bunch of recording of of some chamber pieces in these very strange spaces out in, out in a concrete fort in Port Townsend, Washington. And so some of the samples I just were on my laptop. So when you hear things that sound like maybe slowed down strings or clarinet or something, those are, you know, samples that I triggered. But the process piano, which is usually pretty obvious because, you know, you hear the piano sound being repeated or being tremoloed or being, you know, delayed or something like that. I did a lot of that live, almost all of it. I, we certainly, when we went to mix, used more obvious ambiences, you know, delays and, and reverbs and stuff in the mix. And I think once or twice, uh, yeah, I think there was one track where we put the drums in the studio later when we were mixing. And I said, let's process those drums. And I did a live sort of improvised processing of the drums. And um, I think that ended up on the track American Bandstand, which is not on the CD, but is the, the extra track that you could download. Uh, so most of it live. How different is it to play processed piano from playing piano for you? Well, I'll tell you one thing. I'm not sure I have an answer for that question, but um, I thought you were going to ask how, how, how is it to play this live versus the record. And since we're having our CD release in a couple of hours in Seattle tonight, I'm, I'm you know, it's on my mind right sure. at the moment. Um, it's nerve-wracking to do this, this trio live. The music isn't hard, but all the sort of balance between the live electronics and the and the performance i mean we could remix that obviously when we mix the record um but live it's just very very tricky and i don't like it when the electronics feel too obvious i like them to be nuanced um so yeah you know when you're using pedals particularly i mean you're supposed to know what's going to happen but you don't always you know? <laughs> and so and um and so you're sort of improvising with yourself too you know some some delay thing comes back at you and then you play off that it's great it's fun but it's also challenging yeah it feels like uh almost like you're creating the difference that you sometimes get from different performance spaces with this processing yeah. you know like you, you play in a small room a big hall that kind of thing and, and here you're kind of creating a whole different set of sonic possibilities yeah no, absolutely so um I'm curious when you you did all this recording and then you you know you had however many hours of tape um, were by the time the the actual sessions themselves were over were you pretty sure you had a record or was it not till you listened back? You know I didn't really have much time to think about it because then we had to do this live concert and we had to move the piano from the studio out into this guy's enormous living room and then we had to set up all the gear that he wanted to record the live concert which I've, which I've only listened to a few moments of and it sounded great and one of these days I have to get around and, and listen to the whole thing and maybe do a mix of that um, and uh, uh, so I really didn't have much time to think about it and then the next day we drove home which is a long drive, you know, it's like a 10 hour drive. So wow. I had to get back to work. So I think, but he had made me rough mixes and I still had a CD player in my car and which is, you know, becoming more and more thing in the past. And I had them sort of laying around and it wasn't much later, a couple of weeks later, 
basically I was like, whoa, this stuff is, sounds really interesting. I'm going to keep working on this. And the great thing about Eric is that Eric Eagle, the drummer, is that just around that time, he had just started his own project studio because he's a good, a fine engineer as well as a great drummer. And um, so we started working on it there, which, again, was more relaxed than me having to go to a kind of commercially available studio. Um, and so we started to explore it, and we decided, you know, it was worth us both stopping and putting in the time to make this thing happen. How intentionally connected or disconnected do you feel like this trio music is from kind of the the literature of the piano trio, which is pretty weighty stuff in the world of jazz? I mean, there's a, a lot of famous names that come yeah. to mind. <laughs> yeah. yeah, I don't know. You know. It's a good question. I hadn't thought of that. I mean, sometimes there's only two tracks that are that are um, just straight out acoustic, and um, uh, they're both waltzes, and they're both kind of ballady waltzes, and I think they both sound great. Um, I, I, I will confess, you know, piano trio makes me nervous. I mean, I'm, I'm quite confident as a composer, but I did start to play the piano relatively late in life compared to some people. And um, so the piano trio thing, I tend to like quartets where I have another person to work off of. And um, if I don't feel like taking the first solo, they can take the first solo. <laughs> and, um, and this is, you know, more exposed. But I'm, I'm uh, at this point in my life, I'm, I'm really enjoying it. But yes, the literature of piano trios in jazz is quite um, awe-inspiring, to say the least. of the live shows been like i know some have already happened yeah it's been great but it's a it's a lot more work than i thought they said the music isn't hard but the getting everything balanced and um straight and also the music's a lot of the music's very fragile and kind of exposed so it's the kind of thing you know if you're playing a fast hard tune and you make a mistake no one's going to notice but when you play something very exposed and, and harmonically very sort of transparent um it's easy to you know, it's, it's nerve-wracking as well, as I said, but we've had a great time, and um, uh, I'm looking, I, I think tonight will be great, which I don't often say that. I mean, I have confidence, because we've played for the last four to six, you know, we've played a couple, six gigs in the last two weeks, so I'm, I feel like we're in good shape. 
are new things emerging in this music as you guys are trying it out live? Yeah, there's always that thing you start playing it live. You, you, you sort of feel like, oh, I wish we could record it now. Because <laughs> you start to get things together. But yeah, and again, it's a really different challenge. I mean, I think particularly like the role of the bass, I mean, so many of the things were just too, you know, he had his tracks and now we have to sort of recreate something trio where that that doesn't include some of the overdubs we did and some other things that we did looping and that kind of thing. No, there's not a lot of that, but there's some of that. So, uh, yeah, we've had to reinvent it a bit. So I'm very fascinated. I know this is not a key point of this story here, but I'm very fascinated by the idea of this audiophile concert. And how how did it differ in this guy's living room from any other concert experience you might have had? Like, who well, who shows up? What do they expect? I can tell you exactly how, how how it did because there was probably only maybe 20 to 30 people there, if that, and half of them sat in the living room and listened to the concert, and the other half were in the studio listening to the concert live but being recorded. I forget the details, but it was being recorded to digital with one converter, and then it was being recorded to, you know, half-inch tape at high speed. <laughs> Um, and then the third option of some other kind of digital recording. And they were listening, they were list, literally com- che- comparing the different formats as they were listening to the concert, because that's because they're audio files. <laughs> and so um, uh, I just wasn't paying attention. I mean, I, I had to play, but. Um, <laughs> and, um, and also, we had to decide how to treat the music because we hadn't really rehearsed. We'd been recording, but these were new pieces. So we just had to make some quick calls about how to structure some of the pieces and um, went for it. But it was pretty funny. But I, I remember we had a great time. And afterwards, there was a lot of listening to old records on, like, the world's greatest turntable through the world's greatest amp through the world's greatest speakers. You know, <laughs> right. Through, through, a vinyl, through a vinyl pressing that had never been played before. But, you know, something right. like a classic a classic, you know, Hendrix record or something. So we, we, we had fun afterwards. None of us will ever own a house as expensive as the stereo system used to... <laughs> To play those records, that yeah, kind of thing. Yeah, yeah. Who knows? Who knows? <laughs> um, So you mentioned coming to piano, you know, later than some people, um, but but feeling very confident as a as a composer. Were, were those things? Did those have things happen in that order? You were a composer. You started writing things down or writing music first on other instruments, and then came to the piano. Or are, are you just saying that you came to it later in your teens or something that the average person does? Yeah, absolutely. No, I wasn't a composer, composer first. I was a pianist. I mean, I wanted to play like Otis Fan. I wanted to play blues. And then I got into um, Cecil Taylor. I got into the Art Ensemble Chicago. I got into that kind of music, led me kind of to jazz eventually. And But I did love, um, you know, particularly early 20th century composers. I mean, now I love to listen to Bach and to Mozart. But then it really was only, you know, Stravinsky and Bartok and people like that that spoke to me when I was a teenager. I remember listening to the Bartok string quartets a lot and playing the easier piano music because I was just beginning, really. And it wasn't until I got to college that I started to practice a lot. I mean, do you know the pianist Jamie Saft? Who oh, yeah. John Zorn a he's, lot he's been on this so, show also. Yeah. I was I was walking down the street with Jamie one day, and I said, you know, Jamie, I'm not like you. I didn't start playing the piano when I was seven. And he turned to me and said, three. <laughs> <laughs> I've never forgotten that. Yeah. Well, I really, I started to poke around when I was 14, and I really only got serious when I was 18. So, you know, uh, and, and Ligeti in his piano etudes uh, writes in, in the preface to his etudes, you know, he speaks to that. He speaks to the fact that he basically 
you know, can write for the piano well, and he doesn't play the piano badly. I think he's a pretty good pianist, but he too says that, you know, he didn't really start playing the piano until his teens, and that's too late to be, you know, just a complete virtuoso. I mean, it's just, this isn't going to happen. And so the athletic part of it, I mean, you can learn to be a great writer or a great brain surgeon or a great painter or a great novelist or any of those things um, or a great lawyer at starting in college, but you can't learn to be a great pianist um, starting in college. Composing is more like those other things. It's more, it's more sort of adult endeavor. And also, you know, if you don't practice for a week, you're in trouble. If you don't compose for a week, that's not an issue. You know, it's just, it's just the athletic part of it is the part you have to start young, just like you couldn't pick up, um, you know, uh, trying to play tennis when you were 19 and become a tennis star. So, uh, so no, I I wasn't a confident composer at, at at an early age, but it's something that I've grown into, um, and it came out of being a pianist first. But I always joke that if every time I was practicing, I didn't stop to write something down or arrange something for somebody, you know, I I I'd be a better player today. I mean, I was always fooling around with ideas at the piano and then starting to compose stuff, and that started almost at the beginning. Let's take a break from the show and remind you how to support The Jazz Session. Go to patreon.com slash the jazz session, P-A-T-R-E-O-N dot com slash the jazz session. For just $5 a month, you get a bonus episode each month. If we reach 100 subscribers, I'll put three episodes a month up on the main feed. Right now, we're more than a quarter of the way there, which is very cool. If we get to 200 subscribers, The Jazz Session becomes a weekly show. So that's patreon.com slash the jazz session, P-A-T-R-E-O-N dot com slash the jazz session. Thank you very much to the folks who have joined since the last episode. Thanks to Steve. Thanks to my mom, Sally. And to former guests of the show, Ted Poor and Joel Harrison. Now back to the episode. some people might argue with me, but I would contend that the jump from Otis Spann to Cecil Taylor is a sizable leap. How, how did that jump take place? Well, it's a good point. I mean, I was into blues. I was also really into psychedelic music just because that was of my era. So listening to that kind of music, I think, brought me to the sort of sonic exploration. At the same time, you know, I mean, I mean, I think in some ways the leap, I, I think a lot of people would argue with this too, but in some ways the leap from Otis Spann to, let's say, I don't know, Brad Meldow is a, or or even uh, Red Garland is a different kind of leap than to Cecil Taylor. I mean, that's very fair. Sort of, 
it, there's a sort of mus well it's not muscular so much it's just there's sort of a use of the sound of the piano that just Cecil's playing you know and I'm not a fan of all free music by any stretch of the imagination and I'm not a, a fan of all you know sort of post Cecil Taylor piano players but Cecil just had such a a tonal language that interested me. I mean, I think people get hung up in hearing the the tone clusters and the and the the rhythmic, you know, incisiveness. But and Otis Band was the same way. I mean, even though he was a blues piano that shared a lot, a pianist that shared a lot of things with other blues pianists, he has this touch that I just think is unparalleled. And also um, this. Uh, sort of harmonic language that's you know really unique to him and i i often say to students that you know if you think about polytonality which obviously if you're listening um to the bartok string quartets or the bartok's piano music you hear you know there's a lot of blues is almost a polytonal language i mean you have the the more minor part of it being played against the major part of it in this harmonic language that we've come to accept and even sometimes see as cliche but because it's, it has gotten used so much, but it is really quite unique. So anyway, I can't say much more than that, except I also think that when you're that age, when you're 14, 15, 16, 17, you're just so open. You know, another thing that turned me on to people like Cecil Taylor was, uh, was Electric Miles Davis, because Electric Miles Davis obviously spoke to me the way Sly Stone spoke to me and stuff like that, and it led me to the avant-garde. I don't want to spend uh, a ton of time in the past, but I do want to mention one other thing, which is that I was a a junior in high school when Naked City came out. And up until Mm -hmm. that point, had pretty much only heard, um, I don't know, I guess what I would consider kind of pretty mainstream music, whether it was in in jazz or in the rock world or whatever else. I hadn't really heard much psychedelic music. I'd heard a lot of prog rock. I'd heard a lot of Nat Cole and big band music and stuff like that from my grandparents. And then somebody gave me, and I apologize, but somebody gave me a dubbed cassette of Naked City because uh, you know that's that's the way it was. And uh, and I lived in a small town in upstate New York where any other access to the album Naked City was not easily forthcoming. So, uh, but I just remember hearing that and thinking like I don't un- know what's happening at all here, but this is amazing. Like I want to I want to hear more of this, even though I really don't have any language at all to even kind of figure out what this is. But it's just. It's just loud and great and fast and awesome. And so I wonder, mm-hmm. uh, certainly people who listen to this show in particular uh, will be, well, at least some of them will have some familiarity with that era of your work. And so I just wanted to ask what now all these years later, 20 something years later, how you feel about that particular period? Well, it was a great, it was it was a blast. And of course, to me, that band was just one thing that was happening at that time. Sure. Um, you know, it's it, it's one that got more more exposure eventually, but at the time it was just I was playing with all those people, not Joey so much, but certainly I'd been playing with Zorn for quite some time, and we had done stuff that wasn't really. I mean, in some ways had a lot in common with that band, but in other ways didn't. We did his game pieces, we did a lot of free improvising, and Zorn and I also played some jazz together. We we played some, you know, we I mean we were hanging out with people who some of whom had strong jazz backgrounds all the way to people who had no jazz background whatsoever, you know, someone like 
Ardo Lindsay or something. And so, uh, and then I got to know Bill and subsequently Joey. And I had worked with Fred. And again, with Fred, it was more improvised stuff. Um, and, and Eugene Chadbourne, who should be mentioned more and more, because, I mean, I met Eugene and John at the exact same moment. And Eugene, before Naked City, Eugene was the first person I'd worked with who kind of had like, okay, we're going to play this country and western tune for 20 seconds, and then we're going to play this, you know, jazz tune. And, I mean, he was playing with those ideas, um, you know, a couple years earlier. It was all moving quite fast. And like a lot of things, you know, these, these tropes and these ideas were all in the air. And everybody was dealing with taking all their stylistic influences. I think John just did it, particularly in the kind of short pieces of stuff. He, you know, he did... He took more of the kind of cartoon approach, which was something he was interested in, than a lot of us did. But just about everybody I knew at that time was was combining things. And then, you know, the whole idea of, like, genre slashing, which was sort of one term that was used. I mean, if you listen to The Love and Spoonful, and you listen to The Grateful Dead, and you listen to Jim Kreskin and the Jug Band, and you listen to third stream music and jazz, you listen to the Jim Hall group with, um, with, uh, with, uh, with, uh, with Bob Brookmeyer, um, this idea of combining, you know, particularly American musics and finding all your influences and, and finding something to say with them, you know, it's, it, it was just another piece of that puzzle. But that band was a complete blast to play, and we had a great time. So coming back up to now, uh, as I mentioned in the beginning, you have just released uh, two albums. Uh, the first one we just talked about, which is Snow Ghost Sessions, and also just coming out is Those Who Remain. Um, and Those Who Remain seems to me, correct me if I'm wrong, but seems to me kind of more in line with what you have primarily been doing over the last 15, 20 years, kind of writing a lot of uh, chamber music and kind of music outside the, I'm going to play the piano in this, but other people are going to play this music. Um, so first of all, if that's not fair, feel free to correct me. But otherwise, can you talk a little bit about the origins of this particular piece? Right, but I will feel free to correct you because I think it's been about, I, I mean, the funny thing is that in my own life, 
I'm ending up, you know, on a day-by-day basis, I end up playing the piano in smaller groups more than I write music for big projects. Oh, no kidding. At the same time. Yeah, at the same time. um, Yeah, I mean, I play all sorts of gigs. I play in town and I do stuff. But, and even the last couple records I put out, I mean, some places are Forever Afternoon. It's the last CD I put out as a septet with Ron Miles and Sarah Schoenbeck and Peggy Lee and, and Eric, who plays on the trio record. So although that was a project, it still involved, and, and Tim Young was a longtime musical partner of mine and my band Sweet in the Day and Zoni Mash. So, and the record before that was a big band record that I conduct. I do more like conduction in it. Um, and, um, you know, so I think it's pretty balanced. Um, and I haven't put out a chamber music CD in, or, or a, cla- or, or, let me go back. I haven't put out a CD that would be maybe termed classical. In, in other words, that I don't play on, um, actually in al- almost a decade. Uh, so it's, yeah, it's, it's, I would say it's a, a balance of those two things. Well, thanks. But, I appreciate um, that. Oh, no, no problem. Um, and um, th- there is some, one connection between this, the record, the title, Those Who Remain, comes from a poem by Richard Hugo. And my last CD was a septet recording. I just mentioned some places are Forever Afternoon, um, where it was all based on Richard Hugo poems. And a couple of those themes ended up being the sort of foundation for the orchestra piece I wrote, which is in is only in two parts. And um, so, for people who don't know, it's with Bill Frizzell playing guitar. Um, it's it's for orchestra and and an improviser, and um, it takes up the first almost twenty minutes of the record. And then the other piece, uh, These Hills of Glory, also involves an improviser. And it's a woman who lives here in town as a local clarinet player and uh, who's amazing. Um, and But that piece has been played by a lot of people. Uh, I mean, the, excuse me, the improvising role has been played by a lot of people. Ron Miles did it. Uh, El Fizel did it. Um, not on this record. He plays on the orchestra piece, but but he's also done the string quartet. Uh, Carla Kilstead, who's amazing, has done it. Um, uh, I'm trying to think of other people, Avon Kang, Sarah Schumbeck has done it. So in any event, in, uh, so that's the record. It's the orchestra, it's orchestra piece uh, plus the string quartet. And the string quartet I wrote quite some time ago, but I didn't get around to recording it until recently.
and the orchestra piece was a commission, right, from the Seattle Symphony? Is that yeah. right? Yeah. Okay. Yeah, exactly. Will you say something about uh, Richard Hugo, whose work I didn't really know, um, and I just I'm curious about what in it inspired now almost two albums worth of music. Right. Well, it's it's not the, the orchestra piece just used those titles because a couple of the themes were from there, and I liked the language. The other album really was based on his poems. Um, a friend of mine who offered to help me with uh, with making a record also had this idea, and uh, I had been, oddly enough, I wasn't that familiar with Hugo's work, but I was very familiar with some of the Montana writers, including um, a Native American writer named James Welch, who actually turned out to be one of Hugo's great friends and vice versa. Uh, Welch wrote a book called The Heart Song of Charging Out that I had written the beginning of an opera for. In other words, I wrote sort of a work in progress. I got to know his widow, uh, James Welch's widow. It turns out uh, Lois Welch, who I just saw last week actually in Montana, but I've now known her for five or six years. Lois Welch not only was also a great friend of Richard Hugo's, but was Richard Hugo's boss because she ran the English department at the University of Montana wow. in Missoula, and Hugo worked there. So I suddenly got immersed in this whole, but between James Welch's work and getting to know Lois Welch and then having this idea for this Hugo project, I suddenly, you know, Montana's not that far away, at least by West Coast standards and um and so i started just tooling around and looking into it and reading these poems but also hugo was born in seattle he was actually born just outside of seattle but um so he grew up here he went to the university of washington and when he became better known as a poet he got a job off at the university of montana so many of the landscapes are areas that i love that i go to a lot that i know already so that was intriguing and then i thought simply his language is very musical. It flows like music. It works like music. It sounds like music. So um, I, once I got into it, I was really excited. know that uh, ahead of some places are forever afternoon you had stayed in a cabin um, that Hugo had had stayed in as well and I know for myself I have stayed in places um, that were that you know the homes or the workspaces of people who are kind of heroes of mine and whether it should or not it certainly has 
some kind of emotional resonance to be in that space and imagining things that I love being created there. I wonder what your experience was like in that cabin. Well, that was great. My daughter and I went, and I was so grateful. Actually, Lois Welch arranged that for us, but it was through, I can't forget, it was actually Hugo's wife, who was a real Montana family who who had the cabin. And, um, well, first place, when we took hikes, we had to take spray with us because of the grizzlies. So that's, that's you know, <laughs> a trip. Um, and... Um, uh, but I just realized, you know, you go to sleep in this, this pretty small cabin and like a lot of older cabins, pretty dark, um, even in the day and, uh, the sort of cots along the side. And you just thought of these people, you know, th- these, this writers in the mid 20th century and certainly in Montana, there's a lot of pretty hard drinking in that crowd. And just to imagine them all sort of sleeping uh, on close quarters, probably three quarters of them snoring loudly all night long. Uh, it was just because I, I had seen lots of old books and stuff with photographs of, of them all hanging out at that cabin. And it was just sort of, you know, amazing to be there. And there's a river right outside the door and you get your water from the river. Um, but, you know, at the same time, these were these were modern people and uh, with sort of modern lives. And it's just, I don't know, it's very Northwest. That's the best thing I can, you know, the best way I can put it. Even if you've hiked in Vermont or you've hiked in North Carolina, as I have, there's something about that cabin in that area that just feels like this Western culture that, that was very prominent in that era. Well, my guest has been Wayne Horvitz. There are uh, two new, uh, really wonderful albums out, Those Who Remain and also the Snow Ghost Sessions. Wayne, it's been just such a pleasure to talk with you. I really appreciate you taking the time, especially since, like, in an hour you have to be on stage. So thank you very much for being here. Oh, God, it's been my pleasure, and I, I appreciate you doing this. show thanks to the respect sextet for the theme music dave rabel designed the logo you can find the show on social media facebook.com slash the jazz session on twitter at jazz sesh j-a-z-z-s-e-s-h i'm on twitter and instagram at jason d crane 
Please rate and review the show on Apple Podcasts. It really does make a difference and help other folks find the Jazz Session. Also, go to patreon.com slash thejazzsession, p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com slash thejazzsession to become a member today for just $5 a month. There are new episodes on the 1st and the 15th. On December 15th, come back for Gene Rowe. See you next time for another conversation about jazz on the Jazz Session. Thank you for listening, everybody. Bye. Bye. Bye.